everybody. Uh, Ten twelve on the clock. Uh, on the um, seeming like a moment, seeming like an hour bit. Um, yeah, I, 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 I'm sure it won't seem like a moment. Uh, <laughs> I hope it doesn't seem like an hour or more. But one thing I'm very confident of, and that's the subject matter that we have to consider together this morning. Um, I want, as Jeff indicated, you've seen on, oh, by the way, uh, there should be a single page handout that it's not an outline, as you'll see, but uh, it provides you with uh, some of the pa uh, materials, uh, biblical and otherwise, that uh, we'll be touching on as I develop my comments. Um, the first front, pay, front half, our morning lecture, the last half of the afternoon lecture. Now, what I want to do in this session is provide an overview of what the scriptures teach us about our union with Christ. And uh, by a way of introduction, getting into that overview, I'd like to uh, make a couple of comments. Uh, first of all, there is a dimension of mystery to what we have to talk about. And uh, we'll uh, comment further specifically on uh, aspects of the mystery of union with Christ. Uh, but I want to make a general comment about mystery as we find it in the Bible. Uh, mystery in the Bible, at least a large part of the biblical teaching on mystery, uh, is an unknown that is now known. It is a secret, particularly as it originates in God's eternal counsel. But as that mystery, that secret has now been uh, revealed, solved, if you will. So mystery, according to the Bible, is not just something hidden that we have to keep silent about, but it is something that has been revealed. So we are to talk about mystery as it directs us, as the scriptures direct us, and as they bound our thinking, of course. Even though there will always be depths of the mystery involved, the mystery revealed that will be beyond our, in com beyond our comprehension. And so that's in, in regard to that, and it has now some direct bearing on our topic. Uh, look at first Col uh, Colossians 1, verses 26 and 27, the first passage you have on that uh, handout. There Paul is talking about his ministry, his ministry of the word of God, and especially in verses 26 and 7, he gives us a summary of what the word of God is. He says it is the mystery which has been hidden from ages and gener from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Union with Christ, then, is a revealed mystery, and so a mystery uh, that we may have the privilege and even must talk about. Now, with that observation, Look at the quotes that I have there from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which give us some indication how, uh, as Presbyterians, uh, the confessional tradition to which we are committed uh, views uh, the matter of union with Christ. We have an indication here, I just want to point out very quickly, of the centrality of union with Christ as this these confessional statements, these, this catechism, these catechism materials uh, capture that. Question 29, well, let me just say very quickly, in the structure of the Shorter Catechism, questions 21 through 28 have focused on Christ in his threefold office, prophet, priest, and king, in his twofold states of humiliation and now exaltation as he has accomplished or purchased for us a full salvation. So the catechism then goes on in 29 to say, how are we made partakers of the redemption, this redemption purchased or accomplished by Christ? 
And the answer is that yeah, we are made partakers of this rede the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it, of, us, of it to us by his Holy Spirit. In other words, uh, structuring the catechism here is a basic distinction that many of you will be familiar with, a distinction between redemption or salvation accomplished and salvation applied how the purchased salvation is applied. And so we come to question 30. How, is the Spirit, how does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? And this is the answer. The Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. And then in the next question, 31, which I could have put down there and didn't, this, the question is, a number of you will be aware, what is effectual calling? Uh, there, uh, at the heart of that answer, is, that it is it's the work of the Spirit in persuading and enabling us to embrace Jesus Christ. That's another way of expressing union with Christ. So at, then the catechism will go on beyond that to spell out, to enunciate uh, the distinctly different but inseparable benefits that flow from our union with Christ, like justification, adoption, sanctification, and other blessings that uh, flow from that. And then um, I, I thought I would bring in, uh, to round off this little introductory section, uh, the way in which Calvin begins book three of his institutes. Now the institutes are so structured uh, that the latter part, a large part of book two, particularly toward the close, is focused on the accomplishment, the work of Christ for our salvation, as the catechism would say, salvation purchased. And then in book three, Calvin comes uh, to uh, develop at great length how we participate in this salvation, how the benefits of the grace of Christ come to us. And second sentence that controls everything that is said in book three of the Institutes. Read it. First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. And you can see what the, the point that Calvin is making so forcefully in this negative form of statement. Everything, everything about our salvation, everything about the uh, appropriating our salvation is staked in our union with Christ. So I hope, uh, well, you better believe with me at this point that what we're considering this morning is essentially uh, so crucially important. So uh, let's uh, proceed then uh, to uh, a daunting task, which is to overview uh, biblically uh, this topic. And so obviously you understand that my uh, approach has to be selective. Uh, and. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll make certain points that I think are worth making uh, as much as any, and uh, perhaps uh, uh, I'm pleased to learn uh, that, the, that the discussion time, Q&A time that's been arranged, we could perhaps uh, pick up and clarify as necessary. Uh, there are five points that I want to uh, make then. First, while the, ex uh, the expression union with Christ does not occur in the Bible, like Trinity, or incarnation, that expression is not there. Now, while that is the case, though, that expression, union with Christ, fairly describes the central reality in salvation, the salvation that is revealed in Scripture. The central reality I would understand, I would accent from the eternal design of our salvation to its final consummation, to its eschatological realization. So as we move through uh, the basic message of the Bible, the flow from creation to fall, from, from cr creation, fall, and redemption, follow that basic storyline, um, we can observe first that human beings were created in God's image. 
And that means, among other things, they were created to live in fellowship or communion. That's what it means to be in covenant with God, to live in fellowship and communion with God, trusting his promises, obeying his commandments, loving and being loved, loving God and being loved by God. And that, you see, is a, is a form of union. But as we know, sin, sin enters the picture. Sin in its basic character as rebellion, as violation of what pleases God, violation of his will, his law. And what sin does as much as anything is destroy this fellowship bond that existed by creation. It destroys it. It renders humanity guilty and corrupt and so alienated from God, deserving death. We are no longer by sin, our sin left unaddressed. We are no longer in fellowship with God. We are no longer fit for fellowship with God. And so in response to that deep dilemma of the human condition, God God now, not only as creator, but now as creator and savior, undertakes to restore and perfect the life and the communion that was lost by human sin. Now, this saving purpose is intimated already in Genesis 3, 14, and 15, the promise of the seed. There begins a history right there in the garden that unfolds toward its eventual fulfillment in Christ, uh, particularly as we move ahead from Genesis 3 through the Old Testament in God's ongoing dealings with Israel as his covenant people, his bonded people. And that, that bond, that covenantic bond, then is expressed variously throughout the Old Testament. Perhaps the most strikingly, uh, perhaps most striking is the description of God himself as the portion of his people. Psalm 73, 26, the psalmist, God is my portion forever, speaking representatively of those in covenant with God, those in Israel. Or Psalm 119, 57, the Lord is my portion. More Corporately, Jeremiah 10, 16, God is identified there as the one who is Jacob's portion. But reciprocally then, Israel is said to be the Lord's portion, Deuteronomy 32, 9. And particularly noteworthy in this regard uh, is the well-known Isaiah 53, 12. The Lord says of his anointed servant, uh, which we know uh, points ahead to Christ and his work, uh, the one who, among other things, was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The servant there is, as he is rewarded for those sufferings, that is described in these words, I will allot to him a portion with the great, or as we could also translate, a portion with the many. The many will be the portion of the anointed servant. Now that all too quick sketch of the Old Testament uh, brings us on to say that the climactic, and this is a way, uh, I think it's a very important point for uh, understanding an, an overall biblical perspective of this matter of union with Christ. The climactic realization of this covenantal bond between God and his people, the triune God and the church, that centers in union with Christ. And as we'll have a, occasion to accent again and again, it's not a union with a vague Christ or an abstract Christ, but it's a union with the exalted Christ, the Christ who is what he is, because as God's own son, he has done what only he could do in suffering, dying, and being raised for us. Now, this union finds its most prominent New Testament expression in the phrase, in Christ, as many of you, I'm sure, 
most, if not all of you are familiar, or in the Lord with slight variations. Now that language occurs frequently, almost exclusively in Paul, but it is elsewhere, uh, particularly in John's Johanna materials. John 14, 20, John 15, 4 through 7, 1 John 2, 28. Now, uh, just very quickly, without uh, want needing or wanting or needing to even to get into the uh, debates here, scholarly uh, debate about the meaning of this expression uh, in Christ, particularly as it has, it has um, focused in on the use of the preposition in, which is uh, the same uh, in Greek in, which has a, a, does have a, a, a wide semantic range, a spectrum of meaning. Uh, but scholars, uh, that debate, just to indicate the spectrum, ranges from a purely instrumental understanding of it, so that in Christ means by Christ, to say that we're saved in Christ, that says means we're, we're saved by Christ and his work, all the way uh, then to a, a local or atmospheric sense, so in Christ uh, takes on the idea that Christ is sort of the environment in which uh, believers find themselves. And uh, there have been some that have even uh, argued, uh, held to a notion of an actual physical unit, a union, a, a physical fusing between Christ and believers. So in the front of a lot of misunderstanding, we need to be clear about what the Bible teaches. And that brings us to a second point. For those in Christ, this union or solidarity is another word we could use. This union is, we need to be clear, all-encompassing. It extends, in fact, from eternity to eternity. It begins with what is true of those in Christ before the creation of the world even. Ephesians 1.4, they were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And that goes all the way to their, what is still future for us, to our future glorification. 1 Corinthians 15.22, if nothing else, as in Adam all died, in Christ all, the all in Christ will be made alive. They will be made alive they will be raised bodily as they are in Christ. With that all-encompassing scope in view, it promotes uh, clarity, needed clarity, in discussing union, particularly in Paul as he teaches it. It's, uh, it promotes that clarity to make a threefold distinction and to understand the in Christ in Paul, and I'm going to make a threefold distinction now, as predestinarian, label we could put on it, what was uh, um, we just noted in, in Ephesians 1.4, uh, as secondly, redemptive historical uh, union as that involves us in the once for all accomplishment of our salvation, particularly in Christ's death and resurrection. You can think here of, of Romans uh, 6, 3 and following, uh, Galatians 2.20, Ephesians 2.5 and 6, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. But then there is thirdly, uh, an in Christ which we could uh, distinguish as actual or perhaps better applicatory. And now we're talking about the union that is involved uh, in the actual possession of salvation, in the application of salvation, union as it was is in view there in question uh, 30 of the shorter catechism. We could also uh, dub that as existential. That is what is true in my actual life history or existence. Existential there doesn't have any kind of uh, philosophical sense. Now, with that, that threefold, uh, that, that distinction, uh, predestinarian, redemptive, historical, applicatory, or uh, existential, uh, we can make, uh, I need to go on and make some further comment. 
uh, as we maintain these distinctions, we need to keep clear that they are different aspects or dimensions of a single union. We are not talking about uh, a multiple unions or a, 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 a fragmented state of affairs. Uh, we're talking about a single union, and as that is the case, then it is extremely important to maintain each of these distinctions each of the three, and to do that without equivocating on any one of them, as that might happen either by denying any one or blurring the distinction between them, which often happens. Now, the importance of distinguishing uh, can be uh, illustrated, I think, uh, uh, very helpfully, uh, particularly for our, uh, the concern we have which is on the actual or applicatory, uh, uh, our actual union with Christ. That comes out in what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 16, 7, uh, where Paul, speaking of himself in relation to others, says that they were those who, quote, were in Christ before I was. In Christ before I was. Uh, Paul is speaking autobiographically here, but not just as an apostle. He is speaking representatively uh, as a believer, as you, like you and me. And you see, Paul has in view then a before and after of being in Christ. That points then to an absolutely critical transition. See, look at it this way. Paul knows himself, because he wrote it, uh, Paul knows himself to be chosen in Christ from eternity, before the foundation of the world. He also knows himself as one who is contemplated with Christ at the time of his death and resurrection in the fullness of time. But still, you see, there was a time in his actual life when he was outside of Christ, when he was Saul the Pharisee. He was outside of Christ, and it's in that sense that he speaks here. And as he was outside of Christ, he remained, Ephesians 2, 3, a child of wrath. So here we come to an absolutely crucial question. What affects this transition from wrath to grace, as it's indicated here? What, what brings about this transition from the wrath of being outside of Christ to the salvation of being in Christ? And the answer to that is that takes place when we are united to Christ by faith. United to Christ by faith. Let me on this second point then make a, a related observation. Uh, something about the full scope of union with Christ may, can be seen from another angle by the contrast Paul makes between Adam and Christ. Adam and Christ as the second Adam, the last man, as that happens in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. Now, of all, a great deal that could be said here, let me just highlight this. Uh, what's involved at the heart of that contrast is that what each Adam or Christ does is determinative for those in him. Determinative in a nothing less than absolutely decisive life and death determining significance. Adam and Christ, respectively, are determinative for the existence of others. All human beings, in Adam's case, believers in Christ as their representative. But in the case of Christ as their representative, he is more. 
in propitiating the just wrath of God that our sins deserve, as representative, he is also substitute. And in this respect, Christ died for us. He died for our sins, and it can also be said that we died in him, we died with him. Those are correlative and inseparable, Christ dying for us, and we are dying in him. But at the same time, the for us signals the uniqueness of Christ. It signals what is uh, irreversible, non-interchangeable within this bond. We can see that, if nothing else, from the rhetorical question of Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.13. makes it very clear. Paul asks there. The answer obvious. Was, Christ, was, was Paul crucified for you? You and I died with Christ only as he died for you and me. Thirdly then, focusing now particularly on present union, union in the actual application, appropriation of salvation. Uh, more technically, uh, for some of you, the ordo salutis dimension of union, the, the dimension that comes into view in Romans 16, 7, uh, in Christ before me. Uh, we have noted, we have highlighted at the end of the preceding point, the representative and substitutionary aspect. But there are several further facets to be noted, uh, and there are four now uh, that I'll mention uh, uh, as briefly uh, I'll need to be brief. Uh, and here, as you hear me, a number of you will uh, perhaps be aware that I'm following John Murray very closely in his chapter on union with Christ in his, redemption, his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, which I could commend, among other things, for your reading. Uh, first of all, it is mystical. Uh, coming back to that uh, aspect that we noted in the introduction. It's mystical in the sense as Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, 32, uh, it's mystical in the sense of involving a great mystery, a great mystery that has its, and I, I think we can say, uh, as we consider uh, the situation as a whole, it's, it's a mystery that has its closest analogy in the relationship, or what ought to be the relationship between husband and wife. Ephesians 5.32. Now see, that analogy, that analogy with marriage points to the intimacy involved, but at the same time, it makes clear an important consideration that keeps us from getting off track or being drawn away into false kinds of Christ mysticism in talking about union with Christ. That's this consideration. As we consider the analogy with marriage. The intimacy that there is between Christ and believers does not remove or even blur the personal distinction between Christ and the Christian. The personal identity of each is maintained. Mystical, the union with Christ as involving mystery as mystical does not destroy or compromise the personal integrity of Christ and ourselves. This means that in present union with Christ, Christ always retains his representative and substitutionary role, a role that is perhaps most climactically, uh, most powerfully in evidence in his, what Christ does presently, his present intercessory presence at the right hand of God, Romans 8.34. You see, it is the case that our union with Christ is such. Nothing can be more a characteristic of that than the matter of prayer. And what is prayer? Prayer is a matter of our praying to him as he prays for us. Without that personal distinction, the whole idea, the whole meaningful reality of prayer 
disappears. So uh, experiential union is mystical. It is also, secondly, spiritual. Not in the sense of being non-physical or immaterial, but because of the activity and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I would say this as much as anything gives union with Christ its distinctiveness. Uh, this circumscribes, if you will, the mystery involved and protects us against confusing our union with Christ with other kinds of union. And we can make now certain distinctions. Uh, to say that our union with Christ is spiritual, and remember that means effected by the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, is to say that it is not a, an ontological union, like the union there is between the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not hypostatic. That's simply to say it's not like the inseparable bond that there is in the person of Christ between of the two natures. Nor is it a psychosomatic union, like the union there is between body and soul in the human personality. Nor is it identical like the union between husband and wife, which is a one flesh bond. Nor is it, and this addresses a, a serious misconception, it's not merely a matter of intellectual agreement or moral unity unity in our understanding, affections, and purposes. Now, of much that could be said here, spiritual union stems from the relationship, our union as affected by the Spirit, that roots in the relationship between Christ and the Holy Spirit, a relationship that is given with Christ's glorification. That lies in back of our union, the relationship there is between uh, the glorified Christ and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and here I can only uh, state in the briefest terms uh, uh, the uh, central consideration. Because of his resurrection and ascension, Christ, the incarnate Christ, we're talking about the last Adam, because of what happened in his resurrection, Christ has been so transformed by the Spirit, and he is now such, and he is now as resurrected and ascended in such complete possession of the Spirit that he has, as the Apostle Paul says, Christ, the last Adam in his resurrection, has become life-giving Spirit with a capital S, 1 Corinthians 15.45. So that Paul can write later to the same Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3.17, the Lord Christ is the Spirit. What we're talking about here is a functional equation. It doesn't, this bond between Christ and the Spirit that prompts Paul even to write that the last Adam became life-giving Spirit, it doesn't destroy the personal distinction between the second and third persons of the Trinity. But it is a oneness, a union in their activity of giving resurrection life and eschatological freedom. So that in the life of the church and within believers, Christ and the Spirit are inseparable. They are in fact one. And now just glance uh, as I comment very quickly on um, the passage in Romans 8, 9, and 10. I've, I've done a bit of highlighting uh, there. It's not in the original text. Um, the, um, um, to, uh, how Paul brings into view here uh, uh, the situation of the believer in, in union as it relates to Christ and the Holy Spirit. And you can see as you move the, the sequence as you move through verses 9 and 10, First comes you in the spirit, then the spirit in you, then you being, uh, you being of Christ, expressed there in a, in a negative way. 
uh, which is equivalent in effect to in Christ and then Christ in you. See, those are all, fa- those are not, uh, Paul is not sort of factoring our experience as Christians in, in, a, in a sort of uh, slice of pie uh, approach as if this aspect is in Christ, this is Christ in you, in the spirit, the spirit in you. But these are different uh, ways of perspectives of looking on the same on the one union as it is a union with the glorified Christ and has a spiritual character so you can see by now why uh, if you've been following at all why I would want to um, uh, suggest that uh, even if you don't write it out that way when you see the adjective spiritual most occurrences in scripture think with a capital S it's referring uh, to to uh, the uh, Holy Spirit um, and particularly then our present union has a reciprocal character to it because of this spiritual character not only are believers in Christ and he in them he is also in them he is the hope of glory for the church for believers and that hope is Christ in you. Thirdly, such the, uh, our, our union with Christ by faith is inherently vital. Christ in dwelling by the Spirit is the very life of believer. The well-known Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and resurrected by in, in indication, uh, by implication. And I no longer live, Paul says, but Christ lives in me. Colossians 3.4. Your life is hid with Christ in God. And that's not some rhetorical excess or uh, unthinking overstatement. That is a powerful doxology, but it is uh, the exact right description of our situation, a vital union. And finally, present union is indissoluble. Rooted as it is in election in Christ before the foundation of the world. The salvation eternally purposed for believers in Christ is a salvation as it is that infallibly certain of reaching its eschatological consummation in their resurrection and glorification in Christ. Paul says Romans 8.39 that nothing not even death can separate us from the love of Christ and that is because nothing not even death itself can separate us from Christ. Destroy that union. And in this respect, there's a beautiful description in, in uh, answer to Shorter Catechism 37, what happens uh, to believers at death, uh, their souls are made, immediately, are, are made perfect and immediately passed into glory, but their bodies being still united to Christ await for the resurrection. So, uh, to sum up, In our present union with Christ, and only as we are united to him, as Calvin puts it, only then do we share in the salvation that he has accomplished in his death and resurrection, the benefits of his work. Let me say then in the fourth place, um, something more about faith in particular. Its essential role in in our being united to Christ. See, faith as believing in Christ, as entrusting myself to him, faith effects union with Christ in our actual possession. Faith created by the Spirit is fairly seen as the bond of union viewed from our side, from the side of the person that is in union with Christ. Calvin develops that very effectively uh, in, the, in the section there of the Institutes uh, just beyond the sentence that I read earlier. Faith unites to Christ so that his death and resurrection are mine in the sense of now being effective savingly in my life. Or to put it better, faith is the work of God 
affected in us by the Holy Spirit in calling sinners, as Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1.9, into the fellowship of his Son. That is, into union with Christ and into union with Christ who is now what he is as he has been crucified and resurrected. We are called into fellowship, as I indicated earlier, and stress again here with specifically the exalted Christ, so that his death and resurrection in their saving efficacy, saving us from sin and all of its consequences, are now mine. Let me add, inject uh, quickly an important caveat here. Uh, all this, uh, uh, has, as I've been speaking, has been put in, in personal individual terms. Uh, and that dimension can't be, is critically important, it can't be eclipsed. But it, it is not meant, uh, the emphasis I've been making is not meant to deny or downplay the broader or corporate dimensions of union with Christ. You see, the call into fellowship with Christ that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 1.9 is at the same time and inseparably a call into the fellowship of his body, his spirit-baptized body. So we must be clear here. There is no union with Christ that is not also union or fellowship with other believers. 1 Corinthians 12 comes to mind here, if nothing else, the one body with the many parts. So uh, to polarize personal and corporate in matters of the gospel, in matters of union with Christ, is uh, simply foreign to the New Testament, uh, as it would be to eclipse or negate one aspect or the other. Let me, on a fifth point then, uh, what was that, 10-12? Uh, um, it's uh, important for us to understand in appreciating our union with Christ uh, it's important for us to do that among other reasons because uh, and I guess I'd want to uh, challenge you uh, with this as much as anything I, I'm saying um, it's important because it makes clear um, and it keeps the focus where it belongs not on ourselves in salvation. It keeps the focus not on our becoming unduly preoccupied with a particular benefit that we receive, but it keeps us focused on Christ from beginning to end in application as well as an accomplishment. And it makes clear also the wholeness of our salvation the inseparability of all of the benefits of Christ's saving work and presence. And so just to address very quickly a debate that has gone on in evangelical Christianity over the past several decades. Union with Christ. When you understand union with Christ, that makes clear why you can't have Jesus as your Savior but not as your Lord. He must be both or he is neither. You see, you can't have your sins forgiven by Jesus without your life being given over to worshiping and obeying him. You can't have Christ as your mediator, your mediator between yourself and God, unless you have him in all three of his mediatorial offices, his threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. Pointedly, you can't have Christ as your priest, the sacrifice for your sins that secures your access to the presence of God unless you have him as the prophet that you listen to and the king you submit to. And all this is true most foundationally and ultimately all this is true in the matter of our salvation as Calvin frequently puts it in various ways this is true because you have the whole Christ you are united to the whole Christ in all of his benefits or you have no Christ 
none of his benefits. There is no half Christ with whom we are united with only certain of his benefits. And Christ, uh, and, and Calvin's comment at the beginning of his uh, commentary on Romans 1, 6 comes to mind here where he speaks of those who shamefully rend Christ asunder by imagining that gratuitous righteousness is given us apart from newness of life. Union with Christ makes clear to us, uh, concretely clear, how and why this is so. And that prompts then a further comment, more specifically now, on the relationship between union with Christ, union with Christ by faith and justification. See, we do not have our justification apart from or prior to or somehow antecedent to our being united with Christ. Look again at the Shorter Catechism questions that I introduced. Or we can now uh, remind ourselves of the way in which a, a larger Catechism 69, larger Catechism 69 puts it. Justification is a manifestation of union with Christ as the union in view is spiritually and mystical as a spiritual and mystical union not just representative and here's a difference and I don't want to exaggerate the difference here's a difference with our Lutheran and many evangelical brothers and sisters for whom to the extent that they think about this issue a justification precedes union union follows justification as one of its results or a Union is seen as a blessing consequent on justification, which is precisely the reverse of the Westminster Standards. We have our justification only as we are united to Christ and as in union with him, his righteousness, perfect and complete, and entitling me to eternal life is reckoned as mine. Calvin captures this situation in a way that is to put it mildly, worth quoting. It's there on the sheet before you. I want to read it with you, because every time I read it, it thrills me. It's in a context where he is uh, having to disagree with a very serious error by an individual of the with an of an individual with the name of Osiander, and that error is an error in Osiander's understanding of union with Christ. And over and against a false notion of union, Calvin doesn't abandon the notion of union, but he expresses a sound biblical union, particularly as it relates to justification. Therefore, that joining together of head and members, that indwelling of Christ in our heart, in short, that mystical union are accorded by us the highest degree of importance, so that Christ, having been made ours, makes us shares with him in the gifts with which he has been endowed. We do not, therefore, contemplate him outside ourselves from afar in order that his righteousness may be imputed to us, but because we put on Christ and are engrafted into his body, in short, because he deigns to make us one with him, for this reason, we glory that we have fellowship of righteousness with him. I'm not sure how it could be said much better than that. Uh, here we have someone who has understood uh, the mind and the heart of Paul as the Lord's apostle. Uh, I see I am on um, 45 minutes. Um, I think maybe I'll just add this, however. Uh, I'm going to skip over a comment I was going to make on Romans um, 8.29. Well, maybe I'll just say it very quickly. Uh, you see, if, as you look at Romans 8.29 and 30, a uh, passage familiar to us, uh, where Paul, tra uh, where Paul uh, traces out the so-called um, golden chain moving from predestination through glorification in, in verse... Um, in verse um, uh, 30, in verse 29, uh, he sort of 
if you will, condenses the chain, collapses the chain, and brings it to what is its central focus. And why does the apostle tell us that we are predestined? We are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's union with Christ. We are that, is the, that is the focus. When someone asks you, uh, what is your predestination is about? If you say, my salvation, that's true, but it's too vague. If you say, it's for my justification, that's true, but it's not pointed enough for the apostle. The reason you have been predestined is that you be united to Christ, that you be made like Christ. But that is really, see, in a way, only the penultimate point here in Romans 8.29. Because that has all a more ultimate purpose. You are predestined in union with Christ to be conformed to Christ because of the stake that Jesus Christ has in this, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We don't often think of it that way. Uh, what salvation gets for Christ himself. But that, you see, is in, in, in the on all ultimately incomprehensible and all glorious plan of our God from all eternity what our salvation is about that he uses human sin to bring greater glory to the Lord Jesus Christ this is why Christ suffered died and was raised for the dead from the dead this is why he is firstborn from the dead that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And that is what our salvation is all about. I'll skip the comment on Colossians 127. I better stop at this point. Very good, folks. We'll take about a five minute break and begin the second session at about 10 after 11. Feel free to mill around and talk fellowship with one another. Oh, there is food downstairs, coffee and other beverages as well. And again, we'll, we'll begin again at uh, 10 after.